Welcome to this episode of the Intersections on the Spectrum podcast. The Intersections on the Spectrum podcast is the brainchild and passion project of Doug Fletcher and Kelly Braun Johnson, created to discuss intersectional issues within the autistic community and give visibility to marginalized, repressed, underrepresented, or erased identities and issues. We aim to introduce you to the people and stories you didn't know about, but needed to hear, and hope that by seeing yourself represented in the community allows you to feel seen. Our wonderful guest today is Chris. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I was so excited when I saw this email. <laughs> we wanted to, we always like to start off by learning about the identities. What would you say are the identities that you connect with? So I'm a first-gen born in the U.S. Haitian-American kid, so third culture kid in that sense, and I relate to both sides as obviously being born in the U.S., but then having, like, the Haitian identity and having, like, a culture to go back to and a culture to feel a part of is something that I honestly took for granted for a long time. Like, I didn't realize how it affects you in a good way and sometimes not so good ways, but... Like, I, I didn't realize how having an identity outside of the country I lived in was such an integral part of myself until I was honestly, like, 19, 20. And then when I moved to Spain, I felt it a lot more, like, how I was distinctly two cultures at once. But I would say I am both just leaning more toward Haitian as, in the sense of culturally, those were, like, the morals and values and, like, background of how I was taught things. But American also in the sense of, you know, being raised in the American school system, for example, like some of those values and some of those like, like the things you pick up that you have to learn to survive in the American school system, in America as a concept. And they're not all bad. There's a bunch of really good things that come from like being in the U.S., living in the U.S., getting like that sense of work ethic and stuff as well. So I would say I am equally both, but at the same time. I connect more with being Haitian because, especially as an immigrant kid, like, you know what your ancestors did and how you ended up in a new country, and, like, you hold that story really close to your heart, so. I actually took a brief, a very, like, brief one-hour Haitian Creole class. It's very close to French, so, like, I find, like, when I hear it spoken, I can I can kind of pick up what's going on, so if Haitians are trying to hide things from me, <laughs> around me, I can, I'm still like, hmm. <laughs> but you I know, absolutely love that. But it's distinct, you know. It's distinct enough, though, that it, you know it is its own language, and so I, I don't know everything. But when I see it written, it's easier to understand. There's a huge Haitian population in Montreal where I live, so yep, yep. My a lot of my family members live up there. So. Oh yeah. Oh okay. Yeah. Cool. Wow. <laughs> see, the world is so small. Um, yeah, I wanted to I, I talk to you a bit more about that, like how about you know being a third culture kid and you know, how you feel that shaped your, you know, being American at the same time. Like, you, you spoke a bit about it, about how you, you're kind of reconciling those identities. How do you feel that it shaped you growing up? I think the easiest way to describe it is, especially the way I was raised, like the way my parents raised me, because I see the best parts of both sides, I did my best to emulate the best parts of both sides because as with everything, there is a good and a bad side. Nothing is perfect. I want to preface it with that. But I picked up more positives than negatives because that's what I focused on since I had so much material all the time. Instead of being like, oh, well, this is the problem over here and this is the problem over here, I really kind of owned on, like, I really love this about Haitian Creole. For example, the way Haitian Creole is spoken, like, when I need to be dramatic... Haitian girl. That when I need to be like, when we need to be expressive about something for no reason, like I'm telling a story just for no reason and just add some spice, it's Haitian girl, right? But then English, like especially American English and like the vernacular and how it changes, especially coming from like AAVE, like genuinely African American vernacular English and being able to understand all of that too, being raised in the U.S. and like the jokes and the nuances of those things, you know, it's, it's really cool to like put all of that together. So I would say it definitely shapes the way I speak. So I have this joke with my friends. Every single one of my friends understands at least three or four phrases in Haitian Creole because I have this thing where I refuse to translate. I just will not translate. So I'll just say it in Creole and I'll point to the thing and you'll figure it out. And so far, this has not led me astray yet. 
Do they appreciate being spoken in a language that they don't understand? Is that my problem? No. But I know that everybody around me is going to get some quail at some point in their lives. And I think it's best for him. I agree. Why not? It's, it's so funny because I swear in like three languages. So my mom is Quebecoise. So there's the French and then uh, I swear in English and then I went German. Like I, I swear in like three different languages. And it's interesting to me the context of when each language comes out. Like, I find, like, driving, there's a bit more French that comes out when I'm swearing, when I'm pissed off. Um, For whatever reason, my driving has converted to Spanish. Wow, okay. <laughs> so, I, this was a shock to me, too. But I was, like, driving the other day. Well, I just came back to Spain literally a week ago today. And when I was driving in the U.S., I would find myself, like, immediately going to Spanish when somebody would cut me off. And I was like, huh, did not know that. Interesting. <laughs> I totally get that. Like, you don't really know when it's going to come out. Well, when it does, you find out too, you know? Right, right. There's like, there's a certain, like, I don't know, it's, it's anger in different in different languages, right? Yeah, so like this, my mom, my mom being Quebecois, like, she spoke to us in English, in broken English growing up. But when she was angry, then it was French, right? So, like, I'm, I associate being, like, somebody being angry at me in French, pretty much. And when I think, I think it's when I have, like, accidents, kind of thing it's then it's german i don't know why so it's like it's really interesting oh that's so fascinating wait how long did you when did you learn german did you live in germany i did not my father was in the british army but when he was in the british army he got stationed in in germany at some point and he he picked up german he learned some german and right. as a child growing up he would occasionally remember some phrases here and there like totally random phrases like Jigen Zilex, and it's like what? <laughs> it's like giving directions, right? He could do that, but he would say he used to say "Good night, my Liebling." He used to say "Good night, my love," and I've always so I always associated the German language with like love and care, my father's warmth kind of thing. That's um, so cute. And then like I went when I got to college, I started learning it more. But yeah, for whatever reason, like if I stub my toe, it's German. Like it's if I only know one sentence in German, and that's because when I lived in Spain the first time, when I first moved to Barcelona. I just happened to enter a huge group of German-speaking people. And so I decided to learn Ich spreche ja kein Deutsch. I don't speak German. Perfect. Just because. Just, just, <laughs> just as a joke, and it stuck. <laughs> Chris, just speaking to you for these few minutes and following you on social media, I feel the, the joy co that comes from you. And you talk about uh, a lot about autistic joy on some of your social media. What would you say that artistic joy means to you? I like to say that it's a very simple concept, but I find a lot of people complicate it. And so it's become like this like huge thing of like, and there's nothing wrong with this, let me be clear. But you notice on, on social media how like right now, um, autistic joy is becoming like this really big thing. And I love that. But like people really are overcomplicating the whole concept. And to me, autistic joy is literally autistic experiencing joy and that seems really simple and i know that but i have learned through some really heartfelt comments and dms and interacting with people in the community that autistics just being allowed to experience joy as they do is extremely rare and that was very painful for me to find out there are like four videos in particular that i watched that like like seared like in my brain I can like tell you the at names of the person like they were like to me it was traumatizing and I get into the comments and I see yeah me too and I was like me too wait what and I'm I'm reading just comments after comments after comments I wasn't allowed to play the way I wanted to I wasn't allowed to sit around and just read a book the way I wanted to I wasn't allowed and I'm like like I'm like I'm on the verge of tears thinking about it like, as children, like, it isn't even adults, it isn't even like teenagers, and you're trying to like conform them to being adults. Like, these are like, five, six, seven year old people memories are talking, people are talking about their memories in elementary school. Point is, you find people are talking about like these like formative years. And they're like, yeah, I wasn't really allowed to like just sit by myself and play with my dolls. I wasn't really allowed to play airplane with my arms because they said it was weird. I wasn't really allowed. These are real comments. I'm just like running through that. I just, they, they just don't leave my brain. And like, I 
I cannot imagine. I do this thing. It's like a big joke now as an adult. Like, I'm not allowed to go to the bathroom with anything in my hands because I'll stay in the bathroom. Like, I'll just stay and do whatever I was doing. Whether I'm on the phone, whether I'm reading a book, don't let me take my Kindle into the bathroom. It's over. You won't see me for six hours. But, like, as a kid, my parents knew that, right? And so what my parents did was it was like, just know, you don't bring the book into the bathroom. We don't eat without you. And then it was like, ooh, but food. But food, right? So that's how they would kind of, like, get me out of my own head. But it wasn't that I was punished for reading. It was, this is not the appropriate time to read because we're waiting on you to eat food. So let's not do that. Yeah. And I find that the amount of like easily accommodatable things that could have been done for these kids, like, for example, a really big one is like the stimming, right? Oh, but they're so loud. They're stimming so loud. They're moving their arms. They're making these huge movements. Like, we can't have that. Or we could take them to the park outside for an hour. Like, what's your excuse? And I understand when you have single parent working X amount of hours, like there are actual situations in which your parents couldn't take you to the park for an hour. Like, I get that. But then if you as a parent are watching your kids suffer because you can't provide X, Y, Z, why didn't you try to be like, okay, we're going to do like a fort in the, we're going to put your underwear blanket. We're going to make it fun. We're going to try to have fun quietly. What? Like, I see all of these things that could have been accommodated easily. And it blows my mind that as a community, you're seeing hundreds of thousands of adult people talk about, I wasn't just allowed to be happy. It gets me so heated. I understand that there are circumstances. People have jobs, people work. A lot of people went back to school and they had kids. I understand that it is not as simple as like, oh, I can just play with my kid all afternoon. I'm not saying that. But to rob them of a single hour a single hour, you're telling me that wasn't possible. I'm going to need a better excuse. I grew up in the immigrant community. I saw how hard people worked. I'm telling you, everybody has an hour. You didn't even have to do anything. That's the beauty of children. You sit there and you say, I'm watching you play. And the kid is so happy. <laughs> the amount of times my father tricked me, I realized it a few years ago. I was like, this man is a genius. He was like, yeah, Chris, I'm playing with you. I'm playing with you. He's not moving. But because he said he was playing with me, my intelligent five-year-old self was like, but he's playing with me. It works. We're not the brightest at, you know, five to 12. We're not. We're not going to catch on. The amount of times that my father was like, we're going to play by combing your hair. I fell for it. I thought it was a game. I fell for it. Like, I look back now and it's like, you, it's not the Xbox 360. It's not the entire collection of Lord of the Rings and a Broadway show. It's a box and an hour. 30 minutes. 15. What so many autistics were, were robbed of, I realize now, is just joy. And in its purest form. And if you really want to cry, just go into any social media outlet and put in healing inner child work. Done. Y'all really were not allowed to just sit down and play with some dolls. Like, I, my brain is not capable of understanding it. So autistic joy to me, to go full circle after that rant, is just reminding people that, especially as non-neurotypical people, non-holistic people, our brains work differently. Joy is not just like something that makes you happy, but it's something that is integral to your like sense of self and you need to practice it i think i've covered i think if you've listened to some of the other of our other podcasts there's times when my son is like just outside my door so we have a there's my door there's a small hallway and then there's the living room and we have a trampoline pretty much right at the door of the living room and my son's room is actually right behind my office like behind that wall so I hear him mostly. It's my eldest who's autistic, and and he hums very loudly now. He's almost thirteen, so it's getting louder as he as he gets older and bigger. And there's been many times when like he's he jumping on the trampoline and humming and and stimming and and I'm like oh this I said this can't be like more autistic podcast because I've got like not only just us like and the guests I've got I've got my son in the background like jumping up and down and, and humming. Apparently nobody hears it, but I I hear it. 
and I'm not going to lie, it can be tough. It can be absolutely tough when there's times when he doesn't, you know, I'm trying to work and that's all I hear, right? It's Like I said, it's quite loud. I'm sure our neighbors hate us because he'll go outside and we'll do it out there. And I don't care. I don't care. Yeah. Like, too bad. Yeah. Move if you don't like it. Cause <laughs> what are you going to do? No, but the kids upstairs, for example, like we have kids in our, in our building. And the one time, one time that I went and was like, hey, the kids are too loud. It's exam season. That's the, that's it. The rest of the year, we're going to type it out. Why? They're children. They're, they're children. The only time I'm going to be like, hey, can you give me it? Like, I need like two days, three days. It's before an exam. After that, what am I going to say? They're kids. What am I going to say? Exactly. It's not midnight, you know, and I would think usually when this is happening. Sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) It's not 2 a.m. when this is happening. And like I do, like as a parent, I can only imagine like how much y'all have to do. I really and truly. So this is not to say, like, parents are not trying their best. But this trauma is not from, oh, one day out of the week, the kid right. was told to sleep in time. This is trauma. This yeah. is CPTSD that we're seeing online right now. This isn't, you asked your kid to sit down twice a week. That's not that. Right. This isn't, I'm asking you to be quiet for the weekend. Uh-uh. This is chronic you are not allowed to have a voice. You are not allowed to play. You are not allowed to show any sign of affection or happiness. I am not saying eight hours a day, every single day, the kids should be allowed to do whatever they want. That is not what I'm saying. I am saying three hours a week. We can't We can't find three hours a week where a child can be, God forbid, a child. I just feel like there's a lot of excuses getting made. And nobody's looking at the reality, which is you made a kid. And I'm not even talking about autistic kids. I'm talking about a normal child with no neurotypical issues, with no mental differences, like average kid. They need to go outside and run. They need a book to sit around by themselves to finish the book in in one sitting. They need a toy to play with. They need a box to create an imaginary world in. You can't be mad at them for that. Now let's add autistic on top of it. Let's add a special interest. Mine is the color pink. Everything I own is pink. Imagine if my father was like, well, I think it's dumb. I think you're dumb. I think it's stupid. Do you know how many DMs I've gotten like that? Like you having the color pink has healed me. My parents made me feel shamed for liking a color. You shamed your kid for liking a color? Do you even hear yourself? This isn't a kid screaming in a grocery store. Like, you know, when the stings get harmful, then it's like, I understand. I don't know how you deal with that, and I am sorry. But you're talking about a kid that likes everything blue? That's the conversation we're having right now. That you shamed a child into not liking the color yellow. And you're looking at that, and you're thinking, how are we having the same conversation? How are we having the same conversation? It's ridiculous to me. And that's how things go from small, like I like this one small thing, to these huge stims, these huge, like, encompassing ways of being, because you had to repress it for so long. The domino effect. It's going to get worse. It's going to snowball until it becomes, now I have to have this whole huge da in order to be happy, because I wasn't even allowed the little things to be happy. That's exactly how I was raised. I mean, and also, like, I wanted to wear boys' clothes. My mom, she still bought them for me, but it was still a battle, right? It was things that she didn't like. And my, I wanted my room to be blue. They refused to paint my room. Things like that, you know? Like, And I grew up like that. That's exactly how I grew up. And so with my home, I wanted my home to be the sanctuary where kids are going to have all the pressures from outside and all the judgment from outside all the time. But I wanted to make sure that my home was the place where there's a respite from that, you know? So... It's loud. Now that my son has gone back to school, you know, I'm sure at school he's holding it in. Like, because I I can see, I've I've seen him. I've seen him, like, kind of repress his stims and things like that. As he's walking into school, it's like they get smaller and smaller. He has, like, this little head. And they kind of get smaller and smaller as he gets to the door, which is also, like, kind of sad to me. Like, it's not, it's not definitely not something I've ever told him to do or anything like that. It just must be something that he feels. But 
Um, I was going to say, it's, it, you can be as unmasked as you want at your house. Your parents can be as supportive as you want. I've picked up habits. Yeah. There are just some yeah. things. It's, just, it's easier. I don't sing out loud anymore. When I was a kid, I, I would sing out loud in public. Like, But you learn. It, and people don't really like that. So I sing out loud in my house. Yeah. You know, like, it's not, I promise you, you're doing amazing. I promise you it's not you. But you still go out into the world, and you notice. There's weird things you do. So, yeah. like, acceptable stims, I can do this in class all day, and nobody thinks it's weird. Like, twirling my hair, that's not weird. But if I start doing this with my nails and clackety-clacking, and I'm doing that while the teacher is talking, somebody's going to get annoyed. And I know that. Yeah. It's kind of just part of living in a society that's not made for us. Yeah, so, yeah, he comes home after school and he has to let it all out. So there's, like, a period of, of uh, debriefing time. So, yeah, I want to talk a bit about you being in medical school. And, you know, the question that we have for you is actually about, you know, we, we said, what is it about medicine that made you decide this? But I'm kind of wondering, is there ulterior motive in a sense? Like, I'm wondering if you feel that your perspective on being autistic and the way that you care so much for how autistic children should be kind of raised in this more accepting environment. I'm wondering if maybe you would be using your medical degree to kind of help the movement forward in that sense. So I myself personally know what I want to do. I have like a blueprint plan situation. I can't do it without peers though. So I can do as much as I want, but I need to find not only autistic doctors that maybe have been undiagnosed or gone their whole lives, not really realized it. I need to kind of go and find my peers out in the world before I start doing this particular work, which is basically long-term. I want to round up all the neurodivergence that want to be in STEM, that want to be in academia, that want to be in places that normally don't accommodate to us. And before anybody says, no, but like, aren't there like a lot of like people in STEM that are neurodivergent? Well, yes, but that doesn't mean they're accepted as they are. It's just, they happen to have a special interest in something and gung ho, so they're very good at it. Another thing I just want to debunk right now, special interest, we're not, the savant syndrome thing, if your special interest, is technology. You're going to seem like a savant because you've been doing technology since you were three. So before you come at us and say we're geniuses, remember the 10,000 hours rule. Most of us, <laughs> when we realize a special interest, we've been doing it for literally a decade by the time you've met us. It's not savant syndrome. It's just repetition. Back to the main point. I do want to round up basically peers in STEM that can help and create an organization of mentorship to help kids that may not be able to pursue traditional STEM routes because of their neurodivergencies, because of how they present, because of what they've gone through, because of how their brain works, and help them get to the end. Because you find a lot of ADHD, a lot of autistic people, a lot of anxiety people, generalized anxiety disorder to be specific, they start off in like really, really high level STEM stuff. And then because they didn't know how to get accommodations or there were no accommodations or they came out with something and they were demonized for being different and they drop it. And I think that you don't have a very good retention rate with like neurodivergence, like pure to the bone, doing things their own way, getting to the end of academia, especially in STEM, because there is very little support. One of my favorite things about TikTok is the amount of psychiatrists and psychologists that have come out as autistic with ADHD or as ADHD or as autistic because they started diagnosing it. They didn't even know they had it. And for me, that's what I want to find when I get to a professional level is I want to round up all these people that can create an organization to help children who want to go into the thing that I love, right, medicine, or into engineering, or into any type of science, astrophysics, whatever, but not, like, mask all their way to the end, to the point where they get burnt out at some point and drop it. You got a comment in DMs that I've gotten about people that got really far in school and dropped it. They never finished because there were no accommodations, or they didn't know about accommodations, or they didn't have the community to help them through school. 
how I get through school is with a community. And I know that that is something I did for myself. I created my own community because I could. Because I had the energy. Because I didn't have the trauma. Because I had the time. Because I had the space. That is a huge luxury, a huge privilege. So I want to kind of extend these skills that I've learned to create that for other people, but specifically on a career path that is a lot of the times off limits to us as neurodivergents because it's very rare to find an unmasked neurodivergent like me who has a community that can pursue these things at 100% and not have to worry about, what if I burn out? If I burn out, I have people to catch me. If I have executive dysfunction, I have people to catch me. I'm going through some stuff right now that I have my friends are helping me through. Like, I'm, I'm not alone. And that's huge. But many people are. So you can't expect them to finish medical school and deal with all these things alone. You, you just can't. That doesn't, it's not realistic. And so I want to create an actual professional mentorship organization, resources, right, database where this school has this, if you need this accommodation, this school has that. Like, that's the end, end, end goal at this point. But I do need to finish this medical degree. And I do need to find like-minded fingers together. So. Chris, hearing you uh, talk about that, I don't know if you're familiar with this organization. I know they're over in Europe, is Autistic Doctors International which uh, has over 500 uh, different autistic doctors connected to their organization. So if you're not familiar with them, I definitely suggest checking them out at some point. Because I feel like you're doing that right now. <laughs> I, I just Googled it. I'll send them an email. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely send them an, an email for sure. So you're not only in medical school, which to me is would be overwhelming, but you're in medical school. Um, you moved, I think, to a different country to go to medical school. I believe you're in medical school in Spain. So what's been your experience in kind of moving to a new country and being in medical school with uh, maybe a different culture, different language, all that stuff? So first off, I do want to be like full disclaimer for all honesty. Uh, since I came from the Haitian culture, the Spanish culture was just another language and a little bit later times, right? Dinner at 10. So I didn't really have culture shock as a concept. I had culture shock in very specific moments. So like one really good example is you call teachers by their first name. Still not used to it. But you, you get used to it with yeah. like, like when you ask a teacher a question, you're like, Maria, they won't have that. Like it's not like you don't say like doctor, da da da. Even though some of these people, like one of my professors last semester is like double board certified. And like you just like say her name. And it's like, this feels a little disrespectful, but it's the culture. Like it's normal. So like like I've had moments of like, oh, this is a different culture. But I never experienced culture shock because the Spanish culture is really close to my own. Learning a language was hard. That, no, nah, there's no sugarcoating that. When people, I always get kind of annoyed when people are like, how did you learn it so quick? Two years is quick? Hmm. Two years plus a seven-month all-intensive program that I stayed five days a week, seven hours a day was quick? Okay, thanks. Like, thanks for dismissing that. Appreciate it. Learning Spanish made me realize how much of a perfectionist I really was. Because it really annoyed me that I couldn't understand, like, every single tiny nuance. Like, which is so ridiculous. Because I don't understand every single tiny nuance in English. But here we are. And so I will never lie and be like, I had so much fun learning Spanish. I didn't. I did not enjoy feeling dumb. However, we got our coping mechanisms together. We got our, you know, pros and cons lists, you know, we got our support systems and we did it. We, we did the thing. We learned the language and I don't regret it at all. Obviously, I'm very happy, but like in the sense of like, I think some people after making a decision, it's like, oh, but I could have or maybe no, I don't have any like what ifs. I don't have not a single what if I have never stopped thought to myself. 
what if I got into med school in America? Like, I don't even, that thought never crosses my mind because it is what it is. This was my path and it, it was really the right path for me. That being said, I feel like my experience as a medical student that is autistic with ADHD is greatly enhanced by being in Spain because the way the culture is set up here is different, period. Now, I am not uh, formally diagnosed at my university in the sense of, like, I don't have, like, like, it's not, like, on paper to say, like, I get in combinations or anything. I'm treated like every other student. But I have done several PowerPoint presentations on it, like, literally in psychology. I've talked about it openly with my professors when I need help. All of my professors know I'm ADHD autistic, and they're cool with it. Very understanding. I really have not encountered a single problem in two years, honestly. I just one time I showed up to class 30 minutes late because I was literally sitting on my couch with executive dysfunction and I, I just couldn't. And I was like, no, 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 we're going to go. We're going to go to class. We got this. And afterward, it was one of my favorite professors. And I was like, hey, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to be that late. I just couldn't today. But like, you're one of my favorite professors. And I wanted to show you that I'm trying. But like, I just want you to know, like, I came to this class like, this was like a Hail Mary pass, okay? This is a Hail Mary pass. I'm glad it worked. But, like, he was like, oh, my gosh, no, don't worry. Like, I appreciate, I see you in 90% of the classes. Like, I assumed something was wrong anyways in the sense of, like, I just figured you were just having a bad, don't worry. Like, I've never really encountered, not even never really, because that would imply that at least once something bad has happened, but nothing has happened. Like I've been really open about it. My professors, my fellow students, everybody's like, "Ah, oh, yeah, that's Chris. That's how she does things," and that, that's it. <laughs> so I will say I got very lucky, not only in the program I'm in and the professors I have, the students around me, but I do think a part of that is cultural. I'm in a very international environment. Everybody kind of goes in with the mindset of like, "You don't know what I'm going through," and vice versa. My class has people from literally all over the world. Like it. It's one of those things where I think just going into everything, the mindset is different. So me being different on top of the fact that, like, we all know that, like, we're coming from different places is just like, oh, that one's really different. And, like, that's it, you know? So I will say I really think my experience was enhanced by not going to school in the U.S. Currently there's a big thing going on, like, I guess I should say trigger warning for anybody listening talking about how um, residents in the U.S. and uh, elder medical students in the U.S., uh, there's a very big suicide problem. And right now, like recently, an, a, yet another resident doctor just took her life, and it's going viral right now. But what makes me sad is, like, I'm in a weird way, like, this is horrible to say, but, like, I'm glad it's being, like, awareness is being raised for it because I know people. My friends have friends. Like, going through the U.S. education system as a doctor and not so well for a lot of people, even though they worked really hard, even though they seemed like they were doing great. I'm just really glad that I'm not experiencing that sense of burnout and dread to the point where I am having suicidal ideation because that's just not my experience. And I'm very, very aware of how privileged and how lucky I am to have that. But like, it's just an underbelly of the medical system in the U.S. that a lot of people don't know about. And right now, it's like going viral. It's a thing. And it's very, very scary. But a lot like the suicide rate in medical students and medical residents in the U.S. is honestly abysmal. And so I do believe that leaving the country changed my experience. I do believe that 100% because... It's not that it's any easier. It's just different. It's a different culture. It's a different mindset. It's a different approach to things. American medical school is very, very good at what it does. It does create very knowledgeable doctors that have a broad range of subjects and spectrums and none, none, none that they know about. But it's only four years. It's a lot of knowledge in four years. On top of that, the residency system is terrifying. Like, I'm scared of it, and I might be joining it. The hours, the amount that you're expected to do, the amount that you're expected to be ready for, 
the hours, the hours, that's what people don't know about. The hours as a resident are borderline illegal. For me, I am fully taking advantage of the fact that I am happy where I am and I am enjoying my medical experience and I am not going to regret it. I'm not going to look back and be like, wow, that was tough because I'm going to look back and be like, that was hard, but like, I had a great time. I know that. And so for me, I didn't make the decision alone. I had help. <laughs> I had help. But I'm very grateful that my dad and my support system got me here because I could not have planned it better if I tried. I, I saw something recently about the way that the residency system is set up, at least in, in North America. It takes away the capacity for empathy for patients, right? Because they're, well, you know, I had to stay up for three days, for 36 hours straight, and uh, no, I'm living literally. off coffee and whatever. And, uh, you know, your pain isn't, you know, isn't real, you know, and it sets up that kind of ableism. It's, it's yeah. a lack of empathy for the, for the patient, you know, and that's just, if you're not, if you haven't slept, how are you going to listen to a little old lady have a headache yeah. and understand where she's coming from? You haven't slept in three days. How are you going to hear a kid come in and be like, my arm hurts? What hurts? My arm. You really, you really think that your mentality is going to be, you're going to be like, send them home with some paracetamol. Like, it's exactly that. What you just said is perfect. It's how are you going to empathize with your patients when you yourself are suffering? It's set up in a way that it kills the empathy that you have. Because I think a lot of people get into the medical practice because they want to help. And it's yeah. like, and it kills that natural yeah, instinct, right? Yeah. And and makes people feel hardened, I think. It kind of hardens you to, to what other people are going through. That's that yeah. process. Like, it's kind of, I don't know. I think I haven't been. Yeah, it's not overnight. But if after years of dealing with bureaucracy and administration, and oh, they don't have insurance, you can't help them, then it, it gets to you. Yeah. Honestly, the show Scrubs is probably one of the most accurate, like what's going on behind the scenes shows. And yes, it's humorous, but it's not wrong. Yeah, like there are parts of Scrubs that you think to yourself, like this can't be real. It is. So we know, like you mentioned, you're talking about, you know, exam period and having to do a lot of studying, but do you have any other tips, I guess, for any other autistic medical students for, for either for studying or for going through this process? Like you said, you have a lot of support, but what kind of tips would you give to somebody who's listening right now and is thinking about going into it? Do not try to study like your peers. Do not try to live like your peers. Do not try to emulate your peers. They are not you. And let me tell you, you will burn out so quick looking at what your peers are doing. There's this thing called Anki cards, Anki flashcards. It's a way of studying. 90% of medical students are going to tell you that Anki saves my life. I can't stand Anki. What? This double writing notes thing? I already wrote the notes, so I got to write them again? It's not giving what you think it's giving. It's not. Anki is, is my nemesis, honestly. Everybody uses Anki. Everybody. So if you are neurodivergent going into medicine, going into any of these more STEM-heavy fields, please note your process is not going to look like anybody else's. And that's not just STEM. A neurodivergent artist does not create art the way a, a neurotypical one does, right? But I can only speak on what I know, right? I'm in medical school. I can't speak on art because let me tell you, I can barely draw a circle. However... I know for a fact that when I end up randomly with no reasoning at all choreographing a dance, it is not going to come out of my brain the way it is somebody who was trained in dance that is neurotypical, that learned dance, that has the composition down and blah, blah, blah. So I can see how these, this concept is relatable. As a neurodivergent in anything, but especially in STEM fields and especially in medicine where like there's kind of like a monopoly of like how things should be done, read your notes three times. Do your notes three times. Rewrite the notes. Re-listen to the lectures. That's how you learn. Re-listen to the lectures? Oh, my gosh. That's a nap time. I, that is a lullaby. It's time to go to sleep now. I barely listened to it the first time it was coming around. Again? Absolutely not. This is not an Arctic Monkeys CD. I don't want to hear it twice. So you're telling me everybody's doing it. Every 
Forget what everybody's doing. Forget it. It's not going to work for you. There are parts of it that will work for you. For example, the repetition thing. That's true. You learn anything, you repeat. But you will not be able to repeat things the way your peers repeat things because your brain won't let you. It just won't let you, right? So, for example, how I study is I write down the most important things that they say in class. I put it in the margins of my little OneNote. I love OneNote. Great little program. Then I make a Quizlet with only the most important things that I learned. Why? Because I do this thing where I make these mind maps. So if I know this one concept, I now have to use this one thing and then branch it all out. And I only create mind maps if it's something that I don't know. If it's something I already know, uh, no. No. It's not worth my time. Now, why is it not worth my time? Like, don't you want to make sure you solidify it? No. Because then I'm going to get bored. And then I'm going to stop studying. The fastest way for me to keep studying is by keep learning new things. And I know that. That's how my brain works. Now, if that's going to discourage you, if you need to repeat things that help you feel confident and then learn new things, do that. But understand that this system that everybody else has of make sure you repeat it three times, you write it down three times, never going to work for me. Now, put it in a Quizlet game. What? Oh, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I had like 50 chapters on an exam. I just went through every single Quizlet. I was like, this is so much fun. Right? Everybody's different. Did I write down a single thing? No. I did not. I did not write down a single note in last exam season. Not a single thing. Why? Because it was in a Quizlet. Do not look at how other people are studying. Do not look at how other people are learning information and think, ah, this is going to work for me. Look at it and say, this is study inspo. Make it a game. Make it like a Tumblr page. Make it a Pinterest. Like, study inspo. Keyword being inspo. You are not to copy these people. These people are not your idols. This is not a K-pop group that you're buying merch from, okay? Just stick to what you know makes you happy. Stick to what you know is going to help you remember. Take pieces of what they do. Absolutely. But if you're just going to copy and paste what they're doing, it's not going to work for you. And it's just going to leave you burnt out and feeling bad about yourself. My three things for studying are make sure it's making you happy. Make sure it's in a format that you retain information quickly because we all have a format that we retain information quickly in. And make sure that while you're doing it, you're not burning out. Because studying is inherently something that will make you burn out. It's inherent. At the end of studying, you burn out. It's a right mess. But do the thing that is going to give you the most time before you burn out. Because it's coming. Might as well prepare for it. I think that's advice for any time, any the way that we work or study, right? And it took me till I was almost 40 before I discovered that I did not need to work the way that other people do. And that if you force me to try and work the way other people do, it makes me absolutely lose my mind. Um, so it will completely demotivate me and you're not going to get me as a productive person. So. Yes, I love this advice. I love this. And, and I'm trying to teach that with my son, too. And, like, he has to learn. He's still young. So he's got to learn different methods before he can figure out exactly what's going to work for him. But I told him, like, this, you know, I even asked the teachers at some point because the teachers had that repetition kind of thing with math. And like, for him, he sees the concepts in his head, 3D, right? He doesn't, he hates writing. I think he probably has some dysgraphia. Him sitting down and doing exercises over and over again doesn't do anything for him. And what is even worse is that if you make him do things like that, he starts to doubt himself because he's like, well, this is too easy. So that why part, is like that part? He'll be like, well, the rest of the class is taking like an hour to do these three pages. I've done them. I must have something wrong. I must not understand because yep. why am I? How did I do it so fast? And teachers I perpetuate was, this too. Teachers I was perpetuate it too. Super early, and I got the impression that the teacher thought I was reading wrong. My favorite book is To Kill a Mockingbird. And in, it's, not, it's one of my, like, I have like 15. But for intended purposes of the story, my favorite book is To Kill a Mockingbird. And there's this line where Scout tells Atticus that she wasn't allowed to read in school. She got in trouble for reading. It's her fault. It's his fault and Calpurnia's fault that she can read. And Scout was like, and there's a point in like her internal monologue, you know, as the book is written from Scout's point of view. And she goes... One does not love breathing. Until I feared I would lose it, I did not love reading. I, one, does not, one does not love breathing. It's just a part of who you are. And that quote, even though I read it in eighth grade, was like, the, like it stuck with me for so long. 
and that's what I mean like like that's why I'm like saying like I relate to your son being like well if everybody else can do it so why is it taking them so long and I'm and I'm doing it quickly is it me yeah am I the drama like am I the weird one yeah because I remember being in first grade looking around people like struggling with like the picture books and I'm like I'm reading Juna B. Jones and Juna B. Jones is honestly just like fun like this is just I'm just having a good time like this is not this is not hard. Like, what do you mean you don't know how to read that word? Like, I, that's weird. But, and like, I literally made a TikTok about this the other day where I was like, it doesn't matter how accepted and loved you are. You know when you're different and you feel it. You know that you're loved. You know that it's okay. You know there's nothing wrong with you. You've been conditioned. But when you're in that environment, when you're the only one, sometimes you take a second and you're like, oh, I really am sitting here alone. I don't think it's great for the mental to sit in that for too long. I really don't. It doesn't matter how confident you are. We are human. We still want to have connection with other people. So I totally get that where it's like being in class and everybody's taking a long time and you're like, did I mess something up? Did I read it wrong? Was it harder? I don't know. You were talking a little bit earlier about autistic joy. And over the last probably year and a half, Something that's given me that joy is watching uh, K-dramas. Um, so I saw on your social media account that you were talking about your favorite K-dramas, which I was really excited to see because I've been wanting to talk to someone else who loves K-dramas. So I'm just wondering, what is it for, about K-dramas? I know they've become more popular due to Netflix and stuff like that. What is that you love about them? First of all, what K-dramas are you watching? Because, like, I'm just, I'm just nosy. So I don't know. Well, well, probably my favorite one was Startup. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah. I haven't seen it. It's on my list, though. Yeah, it's it's a, kind of about entrepreneurship, which kind of connects with me a lot. Right now, I am watching just because at first I was hesitant to it just because I'm always hesitant when there's autistic characters. <laughs> like, is this going to be an ableist thing? But, but I've oh, yeah. been watching the I extraordinary Attorney Wu. Uh, I'm on episode 10, no spoilers. I, I it. Well, that is hysterical because I believe I am on either episode 9 or 10. I am doing episode, like, breakdowns of each episode on my TikTok because I was like, I want to, like do this right like I don't want to just watch the binge the whole show and then like see you know like try to talk about it after so I'm doing like episode by episode breakdowns of the show and honestly I think especially for Korean media they did a very good job with extraordinary attorney Wu. I haven't seen it end yet so I don't know if they're gonna throw us some nonsense but as of right now I feel they have done a good job it is not perfect. No autistic has every single stem on this planet. That's not possible. However, I appreciate the shout out to showing what stems look like in reality. I appreciate that her father completely accepts her. I appreciate her being completely unmasked. I really like that. Like, they, there are things, oh, I appreciate that she has a love interest and he loves her the way she is. That is very important. Like, I feel it's not perfect, but we are getting in the right direction of where we want to be with autistic representation. Savant syndrome, we all know how I feel about that already. But besides that, I will say, really and truly, I am enjoying watching the show, and I do like the representation, and I do like how they are going about the show and like what the show represents. That being said, what I like about K-dramas the most, honestly is the dramatic plot part. Now, for a lot of people, it's too much, or it's too cheesy, or it's too corny, but I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. And what I think is really funny is the same people that were saying it's too cheesy, it's too corny, na 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 asked them if they've watched Squid Games. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I, I rest my case. K-dramas are genuinely just fun. Like, they're just fun. I don't know. And they do that thing, and I don't know, like, if there's, like, a science behind it, like, movie-making people probably know, or filmmaking make people probably know this, but, like, they, like, get you. Like, they don't even, it's not even that they end every episode on a cliffhanger, because sometimes they do that, too, but there's something about K-dramas that it just, like, 
you have to watch three episodes in a second. Like you're like, I don't know. I have to. I have to. I have to watch the next three. I just. I have to. I don't know what it is, but I'm compelled to find out what happens to this one character in this one character arc, and it has to be right now. The amount of times that I've been late to something because I had to finish an episode. I had to. I, it's not my fault. It's whatever they put in the show. Whatever little magic fairy pixie dust. It's not me. But, like, they're just... Sorry. You know, like, that autistic thing where you notice everything? There's, like, a bug outside my window, and I can, like, see the reflection, like, in my curtains. It's like, please fly away, because I can see you in my peripheral view, and it's very annoying me. Anyways, the point is, K-dramas just have this, like, fabulous, like... They just get you! They just get you in the plot! And I, I don't know, I'm such a fan. I'm also really a fan of, like, the no-gratuitous sexual scenes. Like, we watched a scene in class today from Limitless. And there was a sex scene in it. Like, gratuitous intimacy scenes were in American television until I started watching other television. And then I was like, oh, well, this is nice. Like, I can just think about something else and not... Like, the relations that the characters are having every episode. That's so annoying. So, yeah. I still watch American television. Don't get me wrong. I'm a hypocrite. Like, I'm talking like I don't watch American television anymore. I do. But I just appreciate, like, focusing on things that are, like, random relationships for no reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I definitely would agree with that. I feel the connection in in a lot of these K-dramas. And I I just think it's just good storytelling. And I don't need... English language to to be a part of that like I mean there there are some great American shows but I feel like I don't know they it seems for whatever reason they have a formula down in these K-dramas that I just right. kind of connect like with they know. it's like by episode six like if you're in it by episode six you're finishing the season yeah you're, you just, you're finishing it is what it is yeah well, I'm sure we could talk about this all day, but uh, I think it's probably time to <laughs> end this episode. So, uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining us for the wonderful conversation. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the rambles. There's no way any of this was in a coherent thought process, but I'm glad I got it out. <laughs> I hope this is healing for everybody, but yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was quite fun. <laughs>